Every week, we who call ourselves Christians gather together around the preaching of this book. We live each day basing our lives and our livelihoods on everything that this book claims to say. Too many people in this world believe this is an insane assumption and an insane worldview and an absurdity and it's an irrational. We make moral judgments on what this book says. We base what is real by what has been written in this book. And we make the claim that this book was inspired by God himself. Now, are these just absurdities based upon no logic or no reason? Do we just have faith in this book because we like its message and it gives us hope for heaven one day? We need to have an answer for questions like this. Why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Today in our culture of skepticism and hate towards the Christian faith, we need to have a good, solidly grounded answer for why we believe certain things. We don't need just to base it off our feelings, as so many other religions do. Like if you asked a Mormon why they are a Mormon, the most common answer you would receive is because they felt the Holy Ghost confirm it. Will this answer stand in the face of modern-day skeptics? Absolutely not. We radical Christians make the claim of having a revelational epistemology. It's meaning that epistemology means how we know what we know, and of course revelational meaning revealed, and in this case of scripture, revealed by God. And this is a hugely radical and countercultural claim, and is growing more and more radical and countercultural. We who are Christians claim that to have knowledge, one must begin with God's revelation. Without it, worldview and reason is reduced to absurdity, which I will demonstrate later on. So in today's message, I want to take a step back and answer this important question. Why do we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? It is foolish to go to church every week to study theology if we do not have reason to trust what we are reading, what we are studying, and what we are listening to. We must not only know this for our sake and for the sake of having good apologetics and being able to defend the faith, but also in our own walk with the Lord and to help us know God better and more fully. So, how do we approach this question? If someone came up to you and said, Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? What would you say? We know that in 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So, of course we don't know apologetics is the right thing to do. But how can we do them practically? So the first point I want to address in applying this is to look at the first part of Peter 15, 1 Peter 3.15, that is usually skipped over. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then be prepared to make a defense for him. You cannot go the other way around. You cannot switch these two statements that Paul or Peter has just said. You must see Christ as he is in all his glory to understand why you base your life upon this book. If you prepare to make a defense first, which is in direct opposition to Peter's clear teaching, 
then your evidences or reasons for believing Christ will ultimately fail. For example, the popular YouTubers Rhett and Link last year came out with a video explaining why they're quote-unquote leaving Christianity. And in that video, it was very clear what the problems were. Rhett said in his conversation when talking about his reasons for falling away and his reasons for rejecting creationism, he said they have an answer, talking about the Christians. He said, I just find the answer to be not compelling in the least. So the problem in his eyes was the answer is just not compelling. They have an answer, but it's just not very interesting. And another example of this exact same thing was in an interview with Ben Shapiro and William Lane Craig when talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and the validity of Christ being the Messiah. So if any of you have watched this video, as I did, you saw the questionable approach taken by William Wayne Craig, which is not surprising for him. So he started out by saying that Jesus may have redefined what it meant to be the Messiah. But he said, hey, look at the evidence for the resurrection. So instead of going to the scriptures, he went to the evidence. And this led to Shapiro's response. Shapiro said, I honestly find them relatively uninteresting. So it's not like William Wayne Craig's evidence for the resurrection wasn't impressive. They really were astonishing and extremely compelling. But the root of the problem is that this is not an intellectual problem. It is a heart problem. So William Wayne Craig tried to get Shapiro to reason his way to Jesus, but the evidence was just uninteresting. So we can't try in our apologetics to get people to reason themselves to the scriptures. They can't and they won't apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. And scripture is vividly clear on this point. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And also, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is abundantly clear here on this issue as well. So I'll be starting out in verse 18 and going through 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In verse 18, Paul could not have been more clear. He says the message of Christ is foolishness. It makes no sense to those who are perishing. But Paul says this is not the case for everyone. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message that Paul was preaching at this time was Christ and him crucified, 
and Christ alone. And the Jews wanted more than this, and the Greeks did as well. They wanted complex philosophy, and they wanted complex rules and high-flown speech. But Paul quotes directly from Isaiah 29.14 and says that the worldly wisdom of the world will be destroyed. So, this message of Christ and Christ alone is a stumbling block to those who seek God through their own wisdom. You cannot get to God through human wisdom or evidence. The Jews tried, and it led to them killing the very God who they claimed to worship. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So God's call of salvation is preached to all, but so many people in hearing the message try to understand their way to Christ. Paul says only the called, or only the chosen, receive the power and the wisdom of God. And the Jews understand this completely backwards. They tried to learn their way to God while being dead in their sins. They tried to obtain power and wisdom and the power and wisdom of God before having submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And this always fails. Matthew Henry said in his commentary that Paul had been bred up in Jewish learning, but the plain preaching of a crucified Christ was more powerful than all the oratory and philosophy of the heathen world. This is the sum and substance of the gospel. Christ crucified is the foundation of all our hopes, the foundation of all our joys, and by his death we live. The preaching of salvation for lost sinners by his sufferings and death of the Son of God, if explained faithfully and applied, appears foolishness to those in the way to destruction. The sensual, the covetous, the covetous, the proud, and ambitious alike see that the gospel opposes their favorite pursuits. But those who receive the gospel and are enlightened by the Spirit of God see more of God's wisdom and power in the doctrine of Christ crucified than in all his other works. And this type of thinking the Jews had flows from any system of thought, even within the church, that tries to give credit to human wisdom. We see an example recently of Robbie Zacharias. Of course, we don't know exactly where his heart was at at the end of his life, but we see that he was a very smart philosopher. He was a good apologist, but when you watch his videos, you see a pattern. He is not really preaching Christ alone and Christ crucified. He's preaching philosophy, and he's using high-flown speech. And what we must understand is that worldly wisdom doesn't save, and it never will. Only those who are called will see God in all his glory, and understand that true wisdom flows from the very character of God. And another great example of this, and probably the best example of this, is found within the pages of Scripture itself. And this is found in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. So I want to go ahead and read the whole parable or uh, story, depending on where you lean on that. But I was debating on whether or not I should summarize some of the story. But I decided that just reading the scripture is much better than my interpretation or my summary. And like Mr. Sherman says, you can never read too much of Scripture. So, let me go ahead and read Luke 16, 19 through 31. 
It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. So, I mean, what he's saying clearly is if these men did not believe Scripture, they didn't believe the prophets, they would not be convinced if someone rose from the dead. And this is exactly what happened to the Jews. And this is exactly what happened with Shapiro. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged swords, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active, and it, it is able to cut to our hearts. It does not say the evidence for the resurrection is so compelling that it pierces to our hearts. The evidence for the resurrection does not set Christ apart as holy. Only the word of God can do that through the working of the Holy Spirit. So while the evidence are impressive, it will not save. Only the Holy Spirit through the word of God can do so. So. Also, in saying this, I'm not downplaying the fact that the Christian faith is very much an intellectual faith. But what must come first is regenerating of our hearts to understand the mystery of Christ. So, now with all that said and all that understood, I want to go back to 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope is in you. So, I'll keep saying it. Christ must be set apart before he can be defended. Because as we have seen, wisdom can only be attained by Christ and him crucified and through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. So the first way we know the Bible is the Word of God is because God has called us into his marvelous light and really this is the only way we could ever see and the only way we would ever see. But how do we tell this to an unbeliever? If they ask us, why do we believe the Bible? And the only answer we can give them is because, well, God showed me and he revealed it to me and he opened my eyes. Uh, They'll probably just laugh us off in that situation. 
So how should we respond to those who ask? Now, when looking at this question, there are a lot of different ways it can be approached. So how do we explain to them that the Bible is true? So what I want to do is go through a few ways that answering this question uh, can be approached and let Scripture decide which approach is the best. So the first way we can go about this question is by looking at things evidentially. Or you could also group this into a category of science or scientifically if you want to. So in this category, it just means that when you're asked this question, you go your first thing you go to is evidence. Or maybe not necessarily your first thing you go to, but this is your main topic you use is evidence. And it's usually evidence outside the Bible. Sometimes it's within Scripture. But you just use evidence outside to explain why you believe the Bible. And there are some extremely awesome evidences for our belief in the Scriptures. I mean, one of the best examples of evidentialism is, of course, found in intelligent design. This can also be called common sense, but we'll stick with calling it evidentialism. It's, I mean, we know scientifically that random information does not produce a sophisticated function program. This only produces chaos. We know that information can't arise from non-information. Uh, the well-known atheist materialist Christopher Hitchens, when talking about the biggest problem of a materialist atheistic worldview, he said that if one degree, even one hair is different, then there is nothing. And this is the same man who said that exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. And there is no more exceptional claim than that nothing through an explosion created order. And through that order came a series of evolutionary processes. So the same men who say that to be a theist, especially a theist in the trying God of scripture, is an extraordinary absurdity. They say that we are ancestors of primordial ooze and of bananas and fish. And then somehow try to find a reason to fight against injustices. Their worldview makes the claim that we have evolved from fish to philosophers. So in that, they're claiming there are injustices in the world, and we see a big portion of our culture flows from secularism, believes that we evolved from nothing, and pretend that injustices exist. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It makes no sense because you have no standard of right and wrong. You have to borrow from our worldview. I mean, what if we evolved from all kinds of animals and protoplasm? Why do fish not have courts? Why do they not have laws and virtues and vices? It's because fish are animals, and every human knows that we are different than animals. And the Bible gives us a standard and a reason to believe this. So if you went out in the jungle and saw a lion eating an antelope, unless you were out of your mind, we would not go arrest that lion for being a murderer and being evil. And my question to the atheist materialist is, why not? If we hold the atheist materialist standards, and we just like them are animals, then either arrest the lion, or they need to be consistent with their worldview, and stop pretending as if injustices exist, and only personal preferences. A worldview without a standard of goodness has no right to say something is good, or something is not good. It always ends up being a personal preference or opinion in the grand scheme of things. So when I'm at the park at Sandy Springs talking to people, I always, I usually get to the question, was Hitler wrong? 
for killing 6 million Jews? And this is the answer that I receive most of the time. They say, well, I think that I think he was wrong, but I can't definitely say he was wrong if he thought that it was the right thing to do. And to that I say, number one, it is kind of scary to live in a society with a generation that will not condemn Hitler, but at least they're being consistent with their worldview. That there's no absolute standard by which to judge Hitler or to judge Nero, who are you to say that he is wrong? And morality in that worldview becomes an opinion, and we see this evident even in our own area. So why do so many people believe in this worldview? That if it was lived out, and it is being lived out presently, it leads to complete chaos. I think this can be explained by a quote by Dr. Marvin Lebanau. He said, The real issue in the creation-evolution debate is not the existence of God. The real issue is the nature of God. To think of evolution as basically atheistic is to misunderstand the uniqueness of evolution. Evolution was not designed as a general attack against theism. It was designed as a specific attack against the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is clearly revealed through the doctrine of creation. So obviously if a person is an atheist, it will be normal for him to be an evolutionist. But evolution is as comfortable with theism as it is with atheism. An evolutionist is perfectly free to choose any God he wishes, as long as it is not, as long as it is not the God of the Bible. The gods allowed by evolution are private, subjective, and artificial. They bother no one and make no absolute ethical demands. However, the God of the Bible is the creator, sustainer, savior, and judge. All are responsible to him. He has an agenda that conflicts with that of sinful humans. For man to be created in the image of God is very awesome. For God to be created in the image of man is very comfortable. So, the problem is sin. The problem is that they do not want to live their lives under the Lordship of Christ. We humans want to be the God of our own lives. We want morality to it. We want it to adhere to our preferences. But we all know in our hearts, the law of God is written in our heart. We're creating the image of God, and we know that this is not possible. We know that there's two options. We can either submit to that law of God now, or when it is too late, and we cannot do it anymore. So, how do we know that the God of the Bible is the true God? So, to keep it in simpler terms, we know that there must be a designer, because as Ray Comfort says, a building is evidence for a builder. Just because you can't see the builder doesn't mean he isn't real. But the question is, which builder, which creator? Is it the God of the Hindus? Is it the God of the Buddhists, the Mormons, the Muslims, the Jews, the Christian scientists? Who is the true and the living God? Whichever God it is understands creation perfectly. He knows the galaxies. He knows the water cycles. He knows chemistry perfectly to every minute detail. He knows physics. He knows biology. He knows how everything works in his complex system that he has set up. So would the true creator God say, if he was the creator, he would never say this. The moon is 50,000 leagues higher than the sun. 
and has its own light. This is a direct quote. The earth is flat and triangular and composed of seven stages. One of honey, one of sugar, one of butter, one of wine. And the earth sits on the head of countless elements to produce earthquakes when they shake. Well, the God of the Hindus said this. So we know he cannot be the true God. Also, the Quran both states and strongly implies that the earth is flat and it's not spherical. And the creator would never say these things. The creator knows his world. So we need to test the holy writings. We need to test the scriptures to see if it is accurate to reality and to observational scientists. Observational science, sorry. And as John MacArthur says, if the critics were able to find scientific errors in the Bible, they would have found them by now. So in the so let's test the scriptures. That's what I want to do really quickly is to test the scriptures and see whether or not it can be trusted from a scientific standpoint. So in the book of Job, which is considered to be the first book ever written, it describes the suspension of the earth and space. Job 26.7 says that he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. And this discovery was not found by science until 1650. The book of Leviticus written prior to 1400 BC describes the value of blood in Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And science found out that the blood carries water and nutrients to every cell, and it maintains the body's temperature and removes the waste material of the body's cells. The blood also carries oxygen from the lungs throughout the body. And in 1616, William Harvey discovered that blood circulation is the key factor in physical life, confirming what the Bible revealed 3,000 years earlier. Also, we could go to Isaiah 40, 22, it says, where it says the earth is a sphere. And we know science for a long time thought that the earth was a flat disk. We could go to Jeremiah thirty three twenty two, where the Bible says there's innumerable stars. And science thought there was only around a thousand stars for most of history. The Bible also says in Job 28, 25, the air has no weight. And science then said the air or sorry, the Bible says that air has weight, and science says then, a long time ago and throughout most of history, that air is weightless. Also, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty one says each star is different. Science thought they were all the same. Job 38 says light moves. Science thought it was fixed in place. Um, also, Ecclesiastes 1 says wind blows and cyclones. Science thought wind blew straight. I keep going on, but I'll stop there. There's a chart online I can get you guys if you want it of just so many evidences of what was found in the scriptures before and science thought it contradicted itself, but the Bible came to reign supreme and actually line up with the reality of what is true. So also in the study of our evidences, we could go to the text of the Bible for evidence or for the evidence of the resurrection. So, if you go to study the evidence of the reliability of the Bible, I will highly recommend Dr. James White, as he goes through the Greek texts and shows that the Bible has not been corrupted, 
There's tons of books on that. I'm sure most of you already know a lot about that. But I highly encourage you guys to study that in your own time. But for sake of time, I want to go to my next option really quickly, which is Fulfilled Prophecy, which is one of my personal favorites for those who know me. So the first thing I want to say about prophecy is just this has had an extreme influence on my life as a believer. God has said so many things in his word that we have now seen come into fruition. So many times I can get so immune to certain things such as, or I should be in awe of, and sometimes we can just lose that. Like if someone says something, not just once, that what he said that and then it came true, this should amaze us, but we just grow so immune to that reading our Bibles. And this is just a sad reality and we all need to work on that, including myself. Um, um, we ne- we need to never grow immune to the sovereign providence of God in all things. I mean, he really does run history, and he can, we can see that clearly in the Word of God. So really briefly, I want to tell one of my favorite stories to tell from the park. And I know I use a lot of examples from the park, but they really do work a lot with my sermons. And these conversations have really helped me um, grow in my knowledge of God and how to approach apologetics. So I just want to share this one really quickly. So, at the end of a long conversation with a few younger boys at the park, I was able to get a couple of them a Bible. And today I did something kind of different that I'd really never done before. I had him open his Bible and turn to Isaiah 53. I then read through it with him and I explained what was happening. And I just saw the boys' eyes light up. I mean, they were simply amazed. They knew the story of Jesus on the cross. They they knew all about the resurrection. That's all they'd heard is Jesus died for your sins. And I showed them 700 years before this time happened. Here it was written down in the pages of scripture. And they were amazed. And we should always be amazed as God's people. So also looking at prophecy, we could go to Daniel 7, Daniel 9, or Daniel 11, Psalms 22. We could go to Deuteronomy. We could spend weeks and months and years on the study of the types in scripture. But what I want to do today is briefly look at Matthew chapter 24. And those who know me know how much I love this passage of scripture. But I promise today not to get anything eschatologically controversial today. Some of you probably think I'm going somewhere with post-millennialism with this. But I promise to not go down that road today. So what I want to focus on is Matthew 24, 1 through 2. And I'm sure you guys are very familiar with this, but I just want to give you guys an example of what it looks like for prophecy as an evidence. So Matthew 24, 1, 2 says that Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And also later in this text, he said that this will happen during this generation, also known as before or around the time of 70 AD. And I don't want to go into all the reasons for this and all the context around all of that discourse. Um... I just want to look really quickly at the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple, and show that Jesus' words came into fruition. So, 
as we know, the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple in AD 70 was a catastrophe with almost unparalleled consequences for Jews and for Christians and for all of history. It compelled a whole new vector for synagogue Judaism. It submerged the Jewish homeland for the next 19 centuries under foreign domain. It also helped foster the split between church and between synagogue. So we all know that in 70 AD, the siege by the Romans into Jerusalem was a complete catastrophe. And Titus and the Roman army completely destroyed Jerusalem's city. And the very important part is the destruction of the temple, which Jesus very plainly stated would happen. So after a four-month siege, the Romans stormed the city, killing everyone who was left inside, and they completely destroyed the city and the temple. It was said that so many were the slain on the temple mount that the stairs to the temple flowed with blood. The Jewish historian Josephus said that the countryside, like the city, was a pitiful sight. For where once there had been a lovely vista of woods and parks, there was nothing but desert and stumps of trees. Every trace of beauty had been blotted out by war, and nobody who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. When he was already there, he would still have been looking for the city. And as the fire set by the Romans in AD 70 raged through the sanctuary and the temple, quantities of silver and gold, which had been placed there for safekeeping, melted and ran down between the stones. Roman soldiers tore apart the stones to retrieve the gold and silver, literally leaving not one stone left upon another, as Jesus had foretold 40 years earlier, as recorded in Matthew 24, verse 2. So, even this, amazingly, you can use so many other examples when you go to prophecy, but even an amazing example like this will not bring someone to salvation. There is zero power in prophecy. There's only the power of God through prophecy. That is why Shapiro reads passages about Jesus plainly and rejects them. And know that I'm not saying in your defense of the gospel to leave out evidence in prophecy. But just understand in your apologetic methodology and in your apologetics, they have no power within and without themselves. So what should we do and how should we go about this? So whatever approach you do take, once again, understand there's no power in your apologetic methods. So when we do apologetics, we need to show them that only the biblical account corresponds with the reality and to what is real. We should expect it to adhere to things such as the law of logic and the laws of non-contradiction. And you can only get these laws of logic and only you can get the laws of contradiction from a biblical worldview. So why is it that when there is a debate between an atheist and a Christian, that the atheist expects the Christian not to contradict himself and not to be illogical? It is because there are understood transcendental and understood objective moral truths, and moral oughts. So when the atheist says anything, he's borrowing from our worldview. How can that person say it is wrong to lie, and it's wrong to steal? And they cannot, they cannot make these claims without stealing directly from the Christian worldview. If they really believe in no absolute standard of morality, as Sproul said, steal their wallet, they will react. They know it is wrong to steal, 
and the biblical account gives a basis for this. So we all know that there are transcendental truths that must be followed. We know as Christians that it is wrong to lie because it says in the Bible, God cannot lie, and therefore we should not lie. So you have to have a standard. And this is what Paul means in Romans 1 when he says that they know God, but they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, which leads to them borrowing or at least to them becoming futile in their thinking. So a worldview without the trying God of Scripture makes zero sense and has no basis for any absolute claims. So with all this being said, I want to close by going to Colossians chapter 1, um, starting in verse 28 and then going to the next chapter. Yeah, Colossians, go to the next chapter, Colossians 2, 1 through 10. So starting out Colossians 1, uh, starting in verse, chapter 1, verse 28. So it says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and that the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So, really briefly, Paul has three goals in this epistle. Number one, present everyone mature in Christ. Number two, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So number two is to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. And finally, number three says to not be taken captive by human philosophy and human tradition. So how do these things happen? We need to do as it says in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And this is not just for the preacher. This is a call to all God's elect. Grow up, learn, and be ready to make a defense. James White said that if you're a Christian, you are a theologian. You have no choice. Theology is simply knowing about God. In fact, since Christians are called to grow in their knowledge of God, part of the very goal of the Christian life is theology. And the same can be true and said about apologetics. While we not want to be able to be prepared to make a defense for our faith, 
this should be one of the main desires of our hearts to defend our Lord Jesus Christ well. So if we have a strong rooted understanding of why we believe what we believe, then we will grow in assurance and understand God's mystery and not be taken captive by human philosophy as so many are today. So why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Number one, it corresponds to reality. Number two, it is scientifically and logically true. And number three, it has abounding amounts of evidence. But as we have discovered, we really believe the Bible because of the work God has done in our hearts. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So based off of this, may we now know God to the best of our ability to be able to make a defense for what we believe. And this should help us worship him better because without his sovereign work and salvation, we could never and we would never believe. So take this sermon, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but let this consecrate our hearts to the need to know God and to be able to defend him to the best of our ability and to the praise of his glorious grace. As Calvin said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. And the only way to know how to bark is to know the truth that is being attacked and to know how we should defend it. You wouldn't bark for someone you don't know. And we can only know him by God consecrating our hearts and through the study of theology and the word of God. The very goal of the Christian life is to know God and to make him known. I want to close with 2 Peter 3.17b through verse 18. It says, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lost people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and now to the day of eternity. Amen.